Hello and welcome to our final daily podcast of the 2020 Wigtown Book Festival. Hope very much that you've been enjoying the festival. We would love to hear what your highlights have been from our events across YouTube and Facebook. Why not send us a little tweet or leave a comment on Facebook, Instagram or YouTube. We'd really love to hear from you and hear what you've been enjoying. This episode continues our celebration of the legendary Oscar Wilde with Matthew Sturgis, the author of acclaimed biography Oscar, A Life, as well as a discussion with Sally Reese, a teacher and festivals organiser who offers her unique insights into the world of Wilde. But we start off with Matthew Sturgis. Matthew's once-in-a-generation biography of Wilde, entitled Oscar, A Life, was nominated for the 2019 Wolfson Prize and was named as a Sunday Times Book of the Year. During the course of researching that book, Matthew uncovered dozens of unfamiliar and previously ungathered anecdotes about Wilde, which he has now collected in a new book, Wildiana. Matthew Sturgis, you have a, a new book out called Wildiana, which follows from your exceptional Oscar, A Life wonder if you could if you could begin by just telling us about what led you to write that biography of Oscar Wilde. Well, I, I sometimes feel that uh, I should almost apologise for having written another book uh, on Oscar Wilde, because he, he's certainly someone who has been much written about in, in recent times. But I do think that although there have been many publications on aspects of his life, what there really hadn't been, uh, and for a considerable period, was um, a full cradle-to-the-grave biography. And really, the, the last one of those was a really great book by Richard Elman called Oscar Wilde, but that came out uh, towards the end of the 1980s. And really, in the intervening three decades, 30 years or so, uh, an enormous amount of fascinating new material came to light. Dozens of new letters, uh, new manuscripts, new documents, uh, the transcript of his first trial, the, the, the witness statements from that trial, and other materials. And Really, all the specialist studies that have been done on aspects of his life, all that needed to be brought together and integrated into the story. And on top of that, I think probably the changing years had brought aspects of Oscar's life into a new focus, different aspects. And I suppose you know, the rise of celebrity culture, perhaps, and Oscar's amazing role in the establishment of the idea of fame as being something that could be achieved on its own account was interesting and significant. Also, his various sexual heresies had taken on a, a new significance and relevance in a way. So I think it was a, a book that really needed to be written. And I mean, there were moments when I hoped that perhaps somebody else might take up the task because I realised it was going to be a, a major undertaking. But in the end, you know, I, I lost patience and, and set about it myself. And I mean, it was a, really a, a monumental task to take on, but an extraordinarily rewarding one as well. And it took, I suppose, really almost six years of uh, research and writing to, uh, to bring it to completion. But although it's a, a sort of full and, and richly detailed account, inevitably uh, in my researches, and I found you know hundreds of new and interesting facts about Wilde just uh, from my own researches in the archives and, and libraries, there was a certain amount of uh, material that, that didn't 
fit into the tapestry I was weaving. And I thought there were so many interesting sidelights, wonderful vignettes or uh, forgotten epigrams of Wilde's that I'd gathered together, that it would be an exciting project just to to bring those together in a little anthology as something delightful and unexpected. Yes, and that's that's very much what we have in in Wildiana. Um, can can you say about some of those discoveries that you made along the way that the more the striking pieces that hadn't perhaps come to light before? Maybe just a couple of your own personal highlights or the best surprises that you that you uncovered. Fell into sort of different. Uh, categories. There were, I mean, there were little anecdotes about Wilde that people had written in their memoirs. Because he was such a famous figure in his own day, and he died relatively young, many people who'd known him came to write their memoirs later and would have some sort of vivid recollection of the, of an encounter uh, with Wilde. And I spent a, a very rewarding and interesting month or two in the stacks of the London Library, sort of going through early 20th century memoirs, tracking down previously overlooked anecdotes about Wilde and found some fascinating accounts. I mean, many of which, of course, ended up in the biography, but some couldn't quite find a place. Yes, we have him sort of being described as dancing like a wild sheep the sort of early receptions during his student years in Dublin or on a seaside holiday with his uh, with some sort of younger friends when he, when he was just beginning to make a name for himself as a writer with The Happy Prince and other stories. And he w- went and stayed with the illustrator of that book and some of his friends down on the south coast. And uh, every morning he would get up and with them and go for an early morning plunge into the sea and sort of entered into the spirit of the jolly holiday, except to the extent that he said that he didn't think he could get up in the morning without having a, a cup of tea brought to him in bed first. <laughs> and, and so his uh, his friends did accommodate him to that extent. And it, it was on that holiday, I think, when they were going uh, fishing early but one morning with these skein nets where they'd have to hold a net out in the estuary. And he said that you know nature uh, was marvellous, but it was very uncomfortable. And that was a line that he later used in, uh, in his writings as well. But then also, I suppose, in my trawls through the the various great library collections that hold Wilde's manuscript materials, mainly in America, but also uh, here in Britain. I would almost invariably uh, come across a a sheet or a a few sheets of uh, full-scap paper with uh, sort of drafts of uh, epigrams that uh, that Wilde was trying out. I mean, because although he was a brilliant conversational wit and a man who could extemporise both stories and witticisms by the hour, he did also write out his epigrams and then refine them and then they would make an appearance perhaps in his talk and in his writings and then in his plays, often changing slightly or even dramatically during the course of that process. Yes, there were, uh, there were many delightful discoveries uh, in those pages. I mean, the notion that um, in the presence of a work of art, the public should applaud and the journalist be silent a line that had particular resonances for him, of, of course, because I think he was always rather unfairly treated by the press. And I mean, some of them have a truth to them that, you know, sort of startles and and um, makes one ponder. I can believe anything, provided it is quite incredible. Anything becomes a pleasure if one does it too often. <laughs> it was also a, a line that 
um, could sort of understand from Wilde's perspective, who, uh, given that he delighted in excess, uh, and then just thinking of the sort of range of his epigrams and how they sort of strayed delightfully into absurdity. I mean, I particularly enjoyed, it is a great pity that embroidered waistcoats are so little worn nowadays. Waistcoats are one of the few subjects that are really suitable for serious conversation. I mean, is it your sense then that, as you said, he was a, a noted and celebrated conversationalist? Is it your sense that that comes through in in the work that the relationship between that and the epigrams and how it feeds the work? Then is is his essence there? Do you think? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I think he was. I mean, of all great writers, you know, one of the ones who for, for whom speech and conversation was the root of his literary endeavour. That ideas would come to him through talk. And then he would use uh, work backwards from that towards their sort of literary formulation. And so, uh, I mean, all his wonderful stories, I mean, even, you know, the picture of Dorian Gray, but the short stories like Lord Arthur Savile's Crime or The Canterville Ghost or whatever, he would try those out in conversation as sort of uh, extemporized performances uh, amongst friends. Uh, and then... He, he would sort of be able to note the effects that uh, both of the, the way that the tale was structured and the way that it was expressed you know, on the faces of his listeners. And then he would gradually resolve it in, into writing. And I mean, I think it's one of the reasons why his plays are so wonderfully successful is that they are, in a way, a, a distillation or a refraction of, uh, of his talk. And certainly that's why he's such an interesting biographical subject uh, as well, you know, in a biography, you sort of encounter him talking. You, you just mentioned or just sort of demonstrated what a multi-instrumentalist and how he worked across genre and form and, you know, tried a lot of things. But to your mind, what, what of his work do you think uh, deserves to be better known? Well, one of the, I suppose, the purest expressions of that sort of conversational vitality in his literary work is... Um, in the two great duologues that uh, that he wrote, really quite early on in his career, the decay of lying and the critic as artist, and in a way that they're, they're playful philosophical dialogues. I mean, harking back, you know, he was a great classicist, so he delighted to feel that they stood in um, some relation to the you know the dialogues of Plato and the great revelations of Socrates uh, and his conversation. And like uh, those Socratic dialogues, they're playful, challenging and open-ended as well. They, they don't quite come to a fixed point and the fact that there are two uh, speakers allows for different views to be expressed and to be held in tension. And I think that suited Wilde's playful intellect really enormously. But they are brilliantly clever, brilliantly funny and strikingly original. There's nothing really quite like them in uh, 19th century literature. And they still read with wonderful freshness. I mean, you, you can pick them up and become engrossed at, at any page. I wonder why it is, um, Matthew, that you think or uh, that, that Wilde's work has stood the test of time. I'm thinking of the plays are still still staged, you know, Dorian Gray's still a absolutely cu you know, current and understood concept to us today. Why why is that? What is it about the work, do you think? The the work still endures because I mean, I think its humour is enormously important. I think the, the, the freshness of its wit and uh, humour and its inventiveness still delight. Last year, or I suppose it's two years ago uh, now, uh, there was a, uh, a whole season of his plays throughout the year in London uh, uh, on the Strand. And it was 
amazing. I mean, the, you know, there are very few playwrights, 19th century playwrights, 20th century playwrights, even who could sustain that achievement over the uh, the course of a year. It was it was thrilling to go and see the uh, productions and to see how they engaged uh, a contemporary audience. I mean, the, the real delight that sort of rose from the stalls, uh, you know, the, the laughter and the interest too. I mean, because he's delighted by ideas and fascinated by ideas, there's always something to, to challenge the mind in his work. And its expression is is so lucid and clear that it, uh, it still speaks directly. I mean, if you think of all those other great late 19th century intellectual figures like Ruskin or Carlyle or Walter Pater or whatever, they have really sort of faded um, over time. Their, their message is, is sort of harder to unpack and unpick from their writings. But Wilde's voice remains totally clear, totally uh, understandable and totally engaging. And I think that sort of lucidity is is sort of uh, really driven by his, his humour. But aside from that, I, th- I think that the reason why Wilde him Self remains so fascinating is that he was such a bold uh, and brilliant individualist. I mean, he stood against so many of the constraints that society was attempting to impose upon him and uh, upon others. And I think that contrarian spirit is something that you know will always reach out uh, uh, to, and touch people, and people will draw strength from his spirits and from his. A great individual vision, and that keeps him endlessly interesting and uh, endlessly engaging. I think that's certainly something that comes through in the biography that he was a man of of huge paradox. I think you know, as a figure, there's a sense from from the films and so on that we've we that we know his life, but actually, you 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 unveil a lot of other aspects to him as a as an individual. Uh, he is full of paradoxes. I mean, his life in its trajectory certainly is in that he uh, had this brilliant sort of schoolboy and university career, uh, having been brought up in Dublin. He was educated first at Trinity College Dublin and then uh, really completed his degree or did a, a further degree at Magdalen College Oxford. Um, he seemed set fair to achieve things in the world. But oddly, um, when he, he arrived in London, he, he struggled, I think, to, to gain the recognition he hoped uh, he would for his literary endeavours. But he managed to become famous simply for being famous. I mean, he, he was one of the first people to understand that you know, in the new world that was opening up with the spread of the contemporary print media at that time, with new magazines and newspapers proliferating by the week, that there was a real appetite for personalities. And he managed to present himself as a distinctive personality of the moment. And he hoped, I think, that that fame would propel his literary career. But Actually, as I think probably many people who make a sort of Faustian pact with uh, celebrity, he discovered that that was not the case, and in a way uh, stymied his uh, his literary ambitions. His sort of first literary attempts really faltered a great deal. I mean, his, his two first plays were uh, were failures. I mean, uh, the first Vera or the Nihilist, as it was called, a tale of uh, sort of Russian revolutionary passion, was a disaster when it was put on in New York. And his second play, uh, a five-act um, cod Shakespearean tragedy set in medieval Italy, was never put put on at all. 
and he really sort of founded for a while there and it was only with the sort of growing understanding that he needed to find a, a literary form that would allow his great conversational wit, as we were discussing earlier, to express itself, that he began to make progress. And so those early duologues were uh, hu- were hugely important. His short stories, again, captured something of the social world that he delighted to uh, to move in and the, the wit with which he both viewed it and illumined it. And then his great breakthrough really was when George Alexander, the theatrical producer, uh, approached him and, and said, you must abandon this idea of writing plays you know, set in medieval Italy or revolutionary Russia. And what we want is uh, something that reflects uh, the, the modern social life of, uh, of London and reflects your, uh, your wit. It was th- that sort of prompting that brought Wilde to write Lady Windermere's Fan, which proved to be a huge and instant success. And Wilde suddenly realised that this, in artistic terms, was really his his metier, something that he could do and could do brilliantly well, and that it would have a, an audience, a, an enthusiastic audience. And so it was the beginning of really a succession of you know four successes in a row, a, a woman of no importance, an ideal husband, and then finally uh, the importance of being earnest, which took uh, the social comedy into the into the realm of absurdist farce, really. But that was a, a staggering achievement artistically and commercially. What's his lasting legacy, do you think? The, the work does endure, and that you know, is a, a, a fantastic uh, thing. But, and then he endures uh, as well, I think, as this, this beacon of unrepentant uh, individualism. And I think that is an amazing legacy, and I think it'll inspire p- uh, people and draw people for centuries to come. And just a final question, Matthew, then, how, how far do you think he was aware of his own, that, that he would endure from the archive? Is, is that something that came through, that he, he was clearly aware of his celebrity? Do you think he was aware that he would endure in this way? Yes, I think at the, at the end he was. When, I mean, he had this sort of appalling disaster when he brought the world crashing down upon himself with his ill-advised libel action against the Marquis of Queensbury that led to him being arrested and brought to court uh, and sent to prison for two years. And it seemed that in many ways society had crushed him. He came out of prison and in a sort of extraordinary act of sort of artistic self-assertion, he was able to produce his his great poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail, which was actually the most successful book that he produced in his lifetime to show that, you know, his artistic spirit was not completely extinguished. But then after that, sort of uh, living out these uh, his final few years in exile, separated from the social world, that he uh, that he so enjoyed and that really informed his art. I think he sort of looked back on what he had done and realised that it it was of real worth. And he and he had a confidence and a belief that uh, that it would endure. Thank you so much to Matthew Sturgis. And I know that we thank everyone, of course, for their time in coming to chat to us. But sometimes these podcast episodes can be beset with technical difficulties at our side. And unfortunately, we had our fair share of these with Matthew and he was only patient and kind and good. So thank you so much to Matthew for persevering with us with good spirit. We think you'll agree it was worth it to hear more about the wonderful Wildiana, uh, which is published on the 15th of October. 
finally, we talked to Sally Rees, who is a festival manager for the Happy Days Festival in Enniskillen. Sally's also the leader of learning, creative and expressive arts at Enniskillen Royal Grammar School, which Wilde attended as a boy. So here we are, joined by Sally Rees to talk a wee bit more about Wilde's former stamping ground. Sally, can you tell us just a wee bit about who you are? Um, my name's Sally Rees and I am the leader of learning for Creative and Expressive Arts at what is now Enniskillen Royal Grammar School, which used to be Petora. And I'm also very heavily involved as volunteers manager and coordinator of the Arts Over Border Festivals that take place in Enniskillen, which is the Wild Weekend, which we had in last year, and also the Happy Days International Beckett Festival, which has been going on since around 2012. So that's kind of my connection to Wild and Beckett because both of them went to school here. So Wild was at school 1864 to 71. Uh, so he had his full remit of his years here. He was here from the age of nine till 17. Beckett was at school from 1920 to 23. So my involvement, I guess, with the festivals is related to the fact they both went to the school that I teach drama and performing arts in. What is it about Pretora as was? That's something in the water to produce two such two writers of such outstanding calibre. Can you tell tell us a bit more? You're sitting in the school as we speak, but tell us a wee bit more about this school then. I think it's quite fascinating actually because the tradition of the time was for the Dublin Protestant families to send their children to Fermanagh to Petora as the royal school. So I think there's an interest in sort of connection in that. You know, they would have been outsiders in a Catholic community in the south of Ireland. And then they came to the north to be educated. And I would guess find themselves to be outsiders yet again, because now they find themselves as southerners, Protestant southerners, but in a northern landscape. So I think that's quite an interesting connection between both writers. I don't know what it is about this school, because we don't just boast those two. We also have Henry Francis Light, who wrote Abide With Me, among many other kind of great scholars, as well as um, artists. And, you know, and the literary legacy seems to follow on because we've had quite a few successful writers and playwrights and song singers and pop stars and things come out of the the school. I'm not sure Neil Hannah would appreciate me calling him a pop star, but... (laughs) You know, so there's something inspirational about this place. And I think it's a lot to do with the view. I don't think there's a view that can be bettered from the town, you know, looking out over these waters and looking towards Cole's Monument and just the surrounding landscape. It's an inspirational place to to be. And if you were a solitary boarder, maybe all you had to do was kind of write. Was look or out the window and, and be inspired. It, yes. Could you just say a wee bit more about what we know of Wilde as a scholar? What were his school days like? Are there any sort of standout moments? He's described as being a very sort of solitary figure initially, but also a fantastic wild storyteller. You know, he would make up fantastic tales. There's a little episode where they, the boys went down into town. There was a little bit of an altercation, nothing very major. Somebody bumped into somebody and I think when Wilde came back, it had been sort of reinvented to a tale of him like crashing into a giant and being thrown <laughs> to the ground. So I do think he had a reputation for being a storyteller at at that point and I suppose his early and his first writing were really his letters to his mother there's one only one surviving letter and that was from he was 13 you know where he thanks her for the hamper and her supplies so I think his first kind of written letters 
were to his mum as a, as a young 13-year-old boy at Petora. But he was a very, very, very good scholar. He was, of course, here with his brother, Willie, his older brother. And like Beckett, Beckett was actually at school with his older brother, Frank. Oscar won prizes for classics, scripture, and for drawing. He was quite a, a, a prolific artist. And I think his parents invested quite a lot of money in his art tuition when he was here. You know, he then won the prize, the Scholar's Prize, the Royal Scholar's Prize. So he then got his scholarship to Trinity where he studied classics and, you know, made his way up to the top of his class. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can lay claim to the fact that we had quite a big influence on him as a young budding scholar because this is where he would have been grounded in his uh, studies of the classics mm-hmm. which he went then obviously went on to study further at Trinity so his name did feature and does still quite famously on the scholars board so in school we have boards still in place that uh, list the royal scholars and Oscar Wilde's names up there however it was removed in 1904 so very very quickly after his fall from grace and uh, his imprisonment it wasn't actually repainted until a Around probably the 1930s, 40s, he was replaced. And then ironically, his name is actually a bit more shiny and bigger (laughs) because, (laughs) you know, so it kind of stands out even more. And I mean, there's a lot of speculation about it, uh, like Beckett, that they didn't particularly enjoy their time here. And maybe some of the words that he's quoting in his plays about education Mm. maybe would give that impression too. When he was bankrupt, one of the things that was found in his possessions was actually one of the prizes that he was given from school. And he was a bit dismayed when he saw it and was like, just give it away, throw it away. It wasn't a fond memory of his time at school. Alas, it's not always the case for for folk, of course. But I wonder if you could, you've you've already alluded to this gorgeous setting that that Inniskiln has. Could you just say maybe a wee bit about how that, the surroundings, the heritage of the place maybe snuck into the work? Well, we do like to lay claim to the happy prince because i mean where i'm sitting right now i'm in school i'm actually looking out over locker and, and i can see cole's monument from here uh, which is a tall monument with coal at the top quite classic the room i'm sitting in is where actually wild would have been boarding and it's the view that the boarders would have had out over the lake so i think for us we believe that that's probably what inspired the happy prince because the view from cole's monument is of the whole town and I love that image in the story about the writer in his garret. And I kind of, I always think of that when I'm up here because maybe that was wild projecting into his, you know, looking at his past and maybe projecting his future self onto that character. And also the lock itself is surrounded by reeds. And again, from where I'm sitting, although the landscape will have changed over the years, you know, the reed banks and also the swallows, you know, flying around. Those are all aspects of that story in particular that, you know, we would like to believe could have been inspired by his view from his lonely boarding room. It's lovely yeah. to think it snuck into the work there. You mentioned the Wild Weekend. What was Wild Weekend? What uh, could people get up to and how could they sort of experience Wild in that moment? The, the wonderful thing about the Wild Weekend and indeed the Beckett Festival is really you know, Sean, Doran and Liam Brown's vision for like turning a destination into a literary festival destination. So there's kind of that literary feel and really taking over the town and all the locations. So one of the most amazing things is about how we use everyday places and spaces and they become transformed. So, I mean, in the most recent Wild Weekend, 
we really heavily got the community involved. And one of the things we did was we did wild readings and fairy tales in the shops. So we had like a procession. People went into the different shops and and an actor read different stories. And then we ended up at Cole's Monument for a reading of The Happy Prince. And that was a really profound kind of feeling because you kind of made the connection between the story and the location very strongly. Other things that have happened is we've done very sort of immersive pieces. So we had a reading, immersive reading by Kabosh and performance in the jail square, which would have been the original jail here. And so the, the a community, some of the community were involved acting in that, but also they were led in and kind of had this immersive experience using sound as well as digital images. Another one of my favorites was because I think Wild really appeals to a wide range of people. So we also had this dinner in the dark because I believe when Wild was on his tour in America, he had a dinner in a cave. We couldn't actually get down to the caves to, to eat food, which we, we did try because we have a wonderful cave. But we had dinner in the dark in a local restaurant. So we blindfolded the guests so they could experience what it was like. And that was fascinating. So one of the things we tend to do is have a thematic link to Wilde's work. And then it it creates these kind of events that sort of spin off from there, which will feature some of his readings. But then obviously we have the full scale productions as well. And one of the ones that I think from previous years that would have really stood out was um, a reading in the local church, St. Michael's. And uh, we had De Profundus, which was directed by Adrian Dunbar. And the set that was created for that bespoke set by a local sculpture was just beautiful. It was transformative and it was just beautifully done. So it's about the way a festival can kind of transform the location and so you really start to make a connection between the work and the place and the people Mm -hmm. I mean for me one of the things I really love about the festivals being here is the way you can actually see a wide range of the work you kind of get a sense of the artist in a totally different way in Batora itself we had Oscar Wilde at home which was a collection of extracts from his works that we had done previously in Florence Court and this time we did it in the school and people really love that they love the fact that they're in the school building where he went to school the audience walked around different rooms and saw different extracts of the plays and that was really really successful and just a really engaging way to bring the life the work to life yeah I think I think people really love that kind of um as as you say the the sort of literary pilgrimage the being in a place that he walked or that he where his bunk bed was or whatever it would you know it's just a really sort of powerful feeling isn't it and I know that's something that the artists really reflect on too there's a real excitement about that and a real sort of sense of privilege you know because you do get the sense these the place holds the memories of 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 things that went on before Mm -hmm. so I suppose there is a real sense of that and we've had people come from all over the world to see the work so that's really really special to share this town with everyone yeah it's wonderful it's wonderful how do the people the the sort of local community feel are they excited and energized by these literary pilgrims should we say oh absolutely and it's quite funny because they can usually spot them (laughs) so um you know they they know that the Beckett or Wilde are in town I think for me as well like we couldn't run the festival without our volunteers so we have an amazing kind of support with volunteers who do all of the sort of front of house and lots of running around making sure it happens so there's a real sense of ownership 
leadership and people are really proud of it. And hopefully we'd like to have a town trail or, you know, and the local business community really get on board and we would have had displays and epitaphs. So that's one of the things that we're looking at is actually taking quotes from Wiles' work and actually creating more permanent epitaphs on the businesses to connect the business with the actual work, mm-hmm. you know, because he's so prolific that we can make a connection mm-hmm. between so much of, of his work in every kind of shop and yeah. business and town. Fabulous. You know, so um, that's kind of for the future. But yes, the local community really buy into it. What I would love to know is what does his legacy mean to the students today? How do they feel about being where he was? What, what Does it mean anything to them? Well, it's really interesting because I was thinking about this because, you know, I grew up here, born and bred, and I don't really think I ever really was cognizant of the fact that Beckett and Wilde went to this school until I returned as a drama teacher to Petora like 12 years ago. And then I suddenly realized, oh, actually, that's quite an impressive legacy. And it's actually really nice to be able to say that I'm the drama teacher at this school where these two people went to. But for the students, it's really interesting because they do lean towards the work, particularly as they get older. So we've had students choose to do Waiting for Gatto for their GCSE and being quite criticized for that choice because it was seen to be beyond them, yet they had a real sort of fervent kind of desire to do it. And most recently, you know, the students then discover the work, discover the connection, and then they want to know more about it. And just Friday past, when we had the culture night, the students were asked to bring in some poetry to create a piece. And they actually chose Oscar Wilde's Rescreat. That was one of the, the poems that we incorporated into their performance. I feel that the students actually embrace it, particularly as they get older. And there have been performances all the way through of the work of Wilde and Beckett in school from the 50s and 60s right through to now. So it's quite interesting to see that legacy kind of can roll out Mm -hmm. in that generation. You know, the children's stories have become a really big part of the legacy and the tradition. One of my favourite events that we do in the festival is we have the secret garden and we take the audience to a garden and it's a surprise. They don't know they're getting on a bus. And then we read The Selfish Giant. An actor reads The Selfish Giant when they get there. And we've also interpreted that story for young people. And the young people have got involved in another festival here that we have from Alive, where they've done street theatre. So they've used the story of Oscar Wilde and dramatised The Selfish Giant, The Happy Prince. So I think... The legacy continues because there is so much richness in the actual work itself. Many thanks to Sally for chatting with us. Sally works with Arts Over Borders in Inniskillen and they're taking part in an exciting project that we're involved with called Spotlit that aims to grow the literary tourism sector in the northern periphery and Arctic regions. Working across Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Finland and Iceland, you can find out more about the project at spot-lit.eu. Well, that's it for the last day of the festival. What a time. Remember, there are over 100 events you can catch up with on our YouTube channel, and most of these will be available for one month. So if you've missed anything, head over there to feast your eyes and ears on great literary content. One particular highlight has been the fantastic films Colin Tennant has been producing, especially the ones of the Saltmarsh Library. So do check those out if you haven't already, or even if you have. Well, that's it for more daily podcasts. We'll go back to a less hectic schedule soon. Make sure you're subscribed in your favourite podcasting platform to be certain that you don't miss a thing. But till the next time, thank you so much for tuning in with us. Take good care of yourselves. Bye bye for now.